0: Vladimir Putin seems to have thought that the regime in Kiev could be toppled in 10 days through a blitzkrieg operation carried out from Russian and Belarusian territory. But instead, he has made the political situation in Russia more fragile and volatile than at any time since the 1990s. Could Putin's aggressive expansionist policies in Ukraine actually signal the disintegration of Europe's last empire? Welcome to Silicon Curtain. Please like and subscribe if you like our guest speakers, as it really helps other uh, people in the audience to discover the fantastic experts that we feature on the channel. Anton Shekhovtsov is a Ukrainian political scientist, academic, and writer. He is known for writing about the European radical right, and in particular, its connections to Russia. Shekhovsov was born in Sevastopol and studied at the Sevastopol National Technical University. Anton has also worked as visiting fellow researcher at the University of Northampton as part of the Radicalism and New Media Research Group. He then went on to complete a PhD in Slavonic and East European Studies at University College London. He is editor of the Explorations of the Far Right book series and sits on the board of the Open Source Fascism, Journal of Comparative Fascist Studies. Anton's works have been featured in Open Democracy, Chatham House, Foreign Affairs, the Carnegie Council for Ethics and International Affairs and the Aspen Institute. Anton, I've been reading your articles and posts for many, many months throughout the war, and it is a huge pleasure to welcome you to the channel today.
1: Uh, Hello, Jonathan, and thank you for having me.
0: Well, not at all, it's a huge pleasure. Now, let's get stuck into probably which is one of the more contentious uh, questions of the war, and that is Russian aggression against Ukraine. Uh, The propaganda narratives would have it that this is Putin's war, uh, thereby letting the Russian people off the hook, but can we understand what's going on as the act of one man, or does the Russian population bear collective responsibility for the war that's been unleashed by their state?
1: Well, if we're talking about different aspects of the war, uh, we can have different answers to your question. Uh, I am I am convinced that it is no longer just a Putin's war; that it is a Russian war against Ukraine. Uh, what I do believe is Putin's bit in, the, in this Russian-Ukrainian war is the genocidal element. I do believe that it is entirely Putin's project to eradicate the Ukrainian nation. Uh, we see and we obviously we know from history that, uh, that, uh, uh, that the Russian aggression is not the first time that Russia is trying to occupy Ukraine. Uh, But at the same time, I don't think that the Russian war against Ukraine would have had this genocidal element. It would just be probably occupation. Uh, It would probably even enslavement of the Ukrainian nation, but not the eradication of it. This eradication, this genocidal element, I'm I'm, I'm convinced it's uh, totally Uh, Putin's uh, Putin's wish uh, and it's uh, yeah, this is where we can say that it's uh, Putin's war. But at the same time, I now we see that uh, Russians do bear collective responsibility. I don't think that we can extend the term Russian guilt or, you know, collective guilt on the entire nation because guilt has a more legal, uh, legal aspect, legal uh, angle uh, to what we are talking uh we definitely some people who have committed war crimes crimes against humanity and uh you know crimes against the civil population some of them are guilty you know of those crimes but as for the russian population i think that collective responsibility is the right term to use
0: and uh, you know let's come to putin's particular um Hatred and what that's actually, uh, you know, directed against. But first of all, I want to tackle that idea of collective culpability, because, you know, if we go back and and many people on the channel have uh, have quoted Tolstoy and War and Peace um, during the course of the interviews I've been doing. And. One man cannot wage war, Uh, and you obviously have hundreds and hundreds of thousands of soldiers at the front who are following orders, whether those orders are right or wrong, but behind the scenes, you have the infrastructure of the propagandists who are, uh, you know, inciting this hatred and have been for many years. Um, you also have the key who are suppressing protests. One could say they're culpable as well. And by extension, and I think some people might find this going too far, but for me, I think it's incredibly important. These sanctions were supposed to crash the Russian economy. That hasn't happened because there are, some extraordinary, talented and intelligent uh, economists who've been able to keep the Russian economy functioning. Um, For me, they're as culpable in keeping Putin's war machine going as anybody else. So how do we apportion this culpability?
1: Well, definitely there is that the, the Putin regime has a technocratic aspect and this is the economy because uh, the economy of the Russian state is being managed by people who have no real connection to the ideology, or if, even if, if we can talk about any ideology of the Putin regime, but th- you have this technocratic non-political aspect of the workings of the, of, the, of the Russian machine, of the Russian machinery. And they, of course, they, they do bear responsibility and probably even uh, they are guilty of what is happening because now they are also, now these, all those economists, uh, the Russian bank, for example, and and the major banks and major in financial infrastructures, they are directly involved in the workings of the, uh, well, of the infrastructure on the occupied territories where you have all those uh, uh, crimes against uh, the civilian population, where they are committed so you have this direct uh, involvement of even of those you know technocrats who are not political who may actually they might be even against the invasion uh, this full-fledged invasion uh, from last year but it doesn't mean that they are not guilty of this
0: and let's turn to that question then of Putin where does this loathing of Ukraine come from? Is it, uh, you know, based on a sort of rational animus that he has? So, you know, where in the past, his past, personal past might this come from? Or does he just detest the idea of a territory that doesn't obey his uh, political will, as it were?
1: You see, Putin and uh, people like him, they see, uh, all the they, they believe that ukrainian nation does not exist as a separate identity as a separate entity national entity for them ukrainians or who call themselves ukrainians are confused russians so he believes in the in this greater russian nation that would uh, also feature you know the 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 russians the ukrainians and the Belarusians. and he believes that this exists the the, the existence of, the, of this greater Russian nation. And Ukrainians, if they believe, if they, if they think that they are somehow separate, then they are, well, not even confused and that they're enemies of his own project, which he, he has in mind. And uh, so Ukrainians who want to, to be westernized, who want to be modernized and democratized, they are for him uh, a mistake that needs to be eliminated. Because uh, well, it's not it's not really about the, um, the 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 new Soviet Empire. It's not about it's not creating this uh, or not uh, trying to bring back the the the, United, uh, the, uh, the Soviet Union, but he does want to to bring again the Soviet geopolitical might. Or, or something that could be considered as the Soviet geopolitical might. He wants the same. He doesn't want the Soviet Union. He wants what the might, the geopolitical might that the Soviet Union had. And Ukrainians stand in his way in many, um, well, in, in many aspects. As I said, well, the first aspect is that they undermine his own vision of what the greater Russian nation is. Without those Ukrainians, uh, without the subjugation of those Ukrainians, without bringing them back to the Russian civilizational project, his own project becomes impossible. And uh, he's a he's an aging person. He has been in power for more than 20 years. And I do believe that some things um, even probably you know, ideological have become very important for him and they uh, they constitute what he can call his legacy and his legacy or his vision of the legacy so in, you know the, the the project of his legacy involves the this eradication of the ukrainian nation it's i either Ukra- the ukrainian nation exists either the ukrainian project exists and is um is westernized and becomes part of the West. Or, and then his legacy does not, because this is a completely different project. Or his legacy exists, his own project exists, and then the Ukraine does not. So it's, I, I, I think last year, I compared this to this dilemma of, in, in Harry Potter uh, series about Voldemort and, and Harry Potter. It's only, only one of them can exist. And this is what we we are facing here. It's either Putin and his project, or Ukraine and the Ukrainian project.
0: And uh, you you can make that comparison as well to that uh, quote of Voldemort about uh, magical blood. You know, he says, I don't want to kill any of you uh, you if if you follow my command and control. Um, But the minute you don't, uh, you know, you're tainted. And this goes some way to explain what seems to be the highly illogical and irrational act where the most number of, of victims uh, of torture filtration terror and of course uh, you know um destruction of cities and homes are predominantly uh, those regions of ukraine that were primarily russian speaking or, or whose first language is russian and of course he he's treating them in the most callous way um and, and and if if we accept this idea that he sees them as tainted um either by ukrainian nationalism or probably in his mind tainted by the us the cia and outside forces that goes some way to explaining uh what seems to be a fairly irrational behavior
1: uh, well it's not only this uh we can we i think we should not forget that the rise of putin uh to power took place after Apparently, the FSB and, and his colleagues blew his colleagues blew up uh, buildings in, in in Russia itself, where hundreds of people became victims of those what they how they explained were terrorist attacks by the Chechens, but which were most likely the the work of the FSB and probably Putin himself somehow. Um, so it all started with actually killing Russian people. You know, and if we look at the even, you know, political warfare, malign, Russian malign influence, something that I'm dealing uh, quite, quite actively today, I can see that all those patterns, all those techniques, all those um, tactics that are being used by the Russian, by the Russian, by, by, by Russian stakeholders, by Russian actors in the West, they had been first tested on the Russian territory against the russian population against the russian society how to undermine the society how to undermine the civil society in russia how to make people you know more isolated more alienated from each other so they would not be able to to produce any tangible opposition political opposition to the putin regime but those are the same techniques that are being used now in europe and the west in general but again they had been all all of them had been tested before so you see that uh, Putin has no problem with killing ethnic Russians because he has this higher goal. And, and in itself, is actually quite rational. It's just the belief that he chose to believe. You know, we, we also are guided by the beliefs that for some people can be irrational, but still for, for, for us, they constitute uh, something rational. It's not only emotional, yeah, but something rational. Ukrainians do believe that they have a Ukrainian, a Ukrainian identity, which is separate and which is different from the identity of the Russians. And he believes in a different thing. And he, here you have this clash, the well, if only he believed that the Ukrainians were really a separate national, um, a separate nation, a separate people that have a very distinct identity, actually, Probably then he would not, um, th- th- there would be no urge for him to, to try to eradicate this nation because he, there is also this fear, but not only on his part, but on the part of the Russian ruling elites, that Ukrainians' successful Ukraine, a successful Ukraine, which, is, which becomes part of the West, may be a very bad lesson for Russians living in Russia who could look at Ukraine's successes and think, well, why can't we uh, do the same? Why can't we become part of the West? And, uh, yeah, th- this constitutes one of those fears. But the solution, actually the rational solution to this question is to say, well, Ukraine would not be able to present any bad lessons to uh, to, to, to the Russians because they are just a, separate, just a separate people. They can go their own way. They're they in no way they are an example for the Russians in Russia. And actually, this, this I think is a mistake even for some um, Ukrainians and, and, and for some Westerners who think that Ukraine's development and democratization may become an example for the Russians. Well, if we believe that Ukraine is a separate and very different national uh, national entity, that it doesn't mean that it will produce any example. And we see that. Uh, well, especially you have these um, uh, very often. Uh, you have these uh, um, uh, comments coming from Ukrainians who would be saying, "Well." addressing the russians so why don't you do your own maidan why don't you go and protest well we did this we did this several times we had successful protests but it means that uh, on the on the, at the back of their minds they do believe that ukrainians are the same as the russians uh, so they would deny this in one aspect and but then but then corroborate the same i think fallacy uh, in some other aspects, but we, we I think, you know, we, 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 should be, uh, we should keep some integrity, uh, when we're discussing the differences between the Russians and Ukrainians.
0: And of course, you know, that same fallacy, uh, is even more prevalent, isn't it, in, in, in Western minds, um, and potentially percolates through to some foreign policy, which is the idea that somehow, um, as you say russia will behave differently we're expecting street protests we're expecting uh, you know similar manifestations that you would get in in um, you know european cities uh, and ukraine in in these circumstances um we're also somehow expecting these events to trigger a disintegration of the russian empire because we think that if that was happening in our territories this is how people would behave it's not at all the case, is it, that uh, uh, you know either disintegration of the Russian Empire or rising up of nationalities that have been suppressed for centuries. It, it's not at all the case that this is inevitable.
1: Uh, well, absolutely, I agree, and I there is there is I think an element of sort of Orientalism about this. We are expecting the Russian population to behave the way we, in our imagination would have behaved were, were we, the, uh, if we, you know, have been um, in their place, in, in, in their shoes. So, I, there, there is this fallacy and uh, unfortunately, well, the, the question here also, what, where does it lead? Where does our understanding that Russians are different from Western nations, where does it lead to? Does it lead to, well, let's then um, leave the Russians alone you know, and not, uh, not support in any way any democratization attempt in Russia, or what should we do? So, you know, and here you have different dilemmas and different, uh, different opinions because, well, a good example here is China and its treatment of the Uyghurs, of the, uh, this ethnic minority and religious minority in China. Uh, there, are, there have been several reports, many reports, that what the, 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 these, these policies, these Chinese policies can be described as, as a genocide of the Uyghurs. And yet, Western politicians prefer to be, keep silent on this issue. Uh, And not only because there is a huge, uh, well, trade between China and the West, but also there is an understanding that China is so different from the West that, well, then let's just not even talk about this. And this is the genocide happening right now, you know. And still we, we are keeping silent on this because we believe that they are too different, we would not be able to change them somehow, to democratize them, so we keep ignoring uh, one of the one of the you know major crimes of, of the beginning of the century.
0: And you could extend that too, couldn't you? I mean, this is a future episode, which I'm hoping to do, looking at the Chinese social credit system, looking at the surveillance state. Um, You could extend that same logic to say that China is a more successful autocracy. It is able to suppress dissent far more efficiently and successfully um, than Russia seems able to do so. and their hybrid informational system uh, is far much more controlled, with you know their uh, their internet firewall and so on, uh, and even dissenters are, are cracked down on in, to some extent prior to February twenty twenty two far more ruthlessly. Is it because they are effectively more efficient that they will receive less criticism from the West? It's because Russian repression is so inefficient so brutal so obvious and at times so ridiculous um that we're able to call it out more effectively
1: well there are there are several points here well first if we're talking for example if we're talking about the censorship and the internet you know compared to russia where the internet was developing under well under rules which were quite liberal Um, you know, starting from the, from the nineties, from the end of the nineties, uh, Russian developed its internet and its media sphere, its media environment as, as a legitimate part of the global environment and global internet. It was very different in China when they started developing their own media, media environment, uh, already knowing that that would be subject to censorship. So they started, they, they did not, they never tried to integrate the Chinese internet or the, the, the Chinese media into the global media because they knew that they would control what their citizens were reading. Um, well, obviously, that, that's never 100%. Although I think North Korea has probably reached those you know, not 100% of, of control and censorship. But for China, it was still um, a bit different. Uh, I mean, not a bit different, but really different from Russia, where uh, the, the project of the Chinese internet and the media area were already developed in the, um, well, uh, that uh, had this uh, not a firewall that came later, but as part of the control system. So here you have a difference. Well, of course, there is a there is a polit- there are many political uh, differences. Again, Russia uh, had a very brief moment of what can be called pseudo democracy in the nineties. Very brief period. Uh, obviously, never before had Russia had any experience of democracy. That is also a problem. Uh, but at least they had they had this moment, and then the the repressions. The, the growing authoritarianism in Putin's Russia that happened gradually, you know, it did not happen overnight. So they had this reman- these remnants of some, you know, liberties and, and freedoms. China is very different. They, they, they never, um, you know, try to, to, um, uh, to give to the Chinese population the access to the, um, you know, the to, to free thoughts, to media freedoms. Never try that.
0: And you know, if we're going to be crude, we could characterize the relations between, uh, say, the West and China and the West and Russia as mutual miscomprehension. But actually, hearing what you're saying here, it sounds like we continue to misunderstand Russian motivations. We continue to misunderstand how their system works. And yet, I think they have quite a good understanding of how our societies work. They may not believe in it. They may not want to copy the machinery of our state they may want to just copy the economic benefits without the political system does that put us at a kind of imbalance and does it mean that russian disinformation narratives on some levels are quite successful because they have that advantage of perhaps understanding how we work better than than we understand them
1: well it's not a, well it's a, it's a correct observation but i would say it's not the observation from today it has been it has been correct uh, even during the cold war uh, the soviets uh, probably knew the weaknesses and sensitivities of the west even better than the west was aware of them and uh, so the Russians do have capabilities of exploiting those weaknesses. And democracy, as such, it has weaknesses compared to the authoritarian regime. Uh, it doesn't mean that the, the democracy is weaker than authoritarianism, but there are weaknesses that that authoritarianism uh, may exploit or can exploit. One one uh, very uh, one very good example, in my opinion, is the. Is the democratic process of of making decisions uh, when when in a democracy you need to well give voice to different groups who have their own interests and this process becomes very long the democratic process about you know making a decision in an authoritarian regime is quite faster you know you, you, <coughs> I'm really sorry in an authoritarian regime that process goes faster because you need only to hear voices of a handful of people or interest groups. So it's not like in a democracy. So the, the, And this is a weakness that authoritarian leaders can exploit when they are waging a political war against democracies or against a union of democracies, trying to, well, make that process of making decisions even, you know, even... Uh, slower uh, uh, try to undermine particular, particular um, individuals or states that are engaged in those process of, uh, processes of making decisions. So there, are, there is a plethora of ways how, how an authoritarian regime, such as the Russian regime, can undermine the democratic process.
0: And an area that you are an absolute expert on, and and I wanted to make sure, you know, I put this question to you uh, with this opportunity to talk. And that is the uh, influence of far right organizations, because another aspect of open societies is that until a group openly uh, breaks the law, you know, we we cannot and do not crack down on them. That means that all sorts of extremist rhetoric and behavior can to a certain extent be, be tolerated. This is another area, isn't it, where Russia has tried to leverage the weaknesses uh, of our uh, democratic process by funding and supporting uh, extremist organizations on both the left and the right. but. I suspect, you know, out of my audience, many will will jump up and say that the left is the greatest threat and some will say the right is the greatest threat. And I think that is indicative of how successful Russia is, you know, even within the audience that supports Ukraine, there is still this kind of divisiveness um, of of view as to where the problem lies. Um, But it's not just materially. That right-wing organizations are supported by Russia. It's also strategically, isn't it? And with techniques and tactics. How, you know, I'd love to hear about your your research around that and how difficult it is to prove, you know, where Russian support, either strategically or materially, uh, is being is being inputted.
1: You know, a few years ago, I published a book called "The uh, Russia and the Western Far Right: uh, Tango Noir," and. Uh, at the same time, I never uh, wanted to say that the major threat to the European security or stability came from those relations between Russia and the far right. It was just uh, a topic of my, well, that was, well, a major, that the far right was and still is uh, a major factor in my ex, uh, academic expertise. And I was uh, I was inter- t- interested to see um, and uh, investigate those links. But to those who would say that the, f- the left are a danger, you know, or a far left is a danger, or the far right is a danger, I would say, again, despite the fact that I published a book specifically looking at the connection between Russia and the far right in Europe, I would say the major threat comes from the corrupt mainstream political forces in the West. They are, for Russia, is a plan A. For the Russian stakeholders, for the Russian officials, it is much more beneficial to corrupt mainstream politicians, mainstream officials who are part of the ruling elite in the West, than to corrupt uh, the far right or or, or, the, or the far left. It's only when plan A does not work. So if it, if it, if it becomes too, well, too difficult to corrupt mainstream politicians because then mainstream politicians uh, think that those Russian connections are too toxic uh, and they can be punished for those. And we see uh, that increasingly since 2008, we, we, we have seen that that support coming from uh, coming for, for Russia from the mainstream political forces has 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 become weaker and weaker. It still, it still enjoyed wide support, uh, but still, um, uh, it just grew weaker, and uh, so if, even if they cannot corrupt the mainstream, then the plan B is to use the more extreme forces, the radical forces, both on the far right and on the far left, to undermine European societies, Western societies, through those radical forces, but it's only plan B, as I said.
0: And how successful was that? We know that uh, in many of the countries supporting the uh, the alliance um, uh, for Ukraine, that this kind of uh, political, um, how do you say it, this political involvement or this political corruption um, has lessened, or at least we are starting to build some resilience to it. But that's in stark contrast, isn't it, with the period 2014 through to 2022, where even though Russia was engaged in uh, you know, aggressive behavior, imperialist uh, invasion, uh, which I firmly believe that is, there's no way it's a, a civil war, um, the sanctions regime was extremely light. They had RT still broadcasting. They had the Nord Stream pipelines pumping uh, energy into Europe to keep its economy going. Uh, And of course, they had a huge amount of influence in the West through oligarchs, um, through political relations, through investment in media, publishing organizations and the rest of it. And of course, academia as well. So did that give them the sense that, you know, even if the the influence was weakening, that it wouldn't go away to the extent it was? Did that give them the confidence to actually launch that war uh, in February last year?
1: Well, they definitely thought that the the response from the West um, would have been weaker than it, well, than it, uh, it eventually was. So I think that was their belief. Uh, but at the same time, uh, as I said, uh, in in many ways, this is the the war, or the, at least the genocidal aspect of the war is still Putin's project, and apparently. Apparently, he thought that probably that there there was no time to try to subjugate Ukraine in a different manner, that he had to act quick to do well, to implement his uh, his genocidal project to to eradicate uh, the Ukrainian nation. So he decided to do this. So I think that was for him. He didn't really look at the reaction of the West, in this particular case, in February in February last year. Uh, probably he did care about potential Western responses before, but at, then at some point, and I, I think that was quite clear uh, in various interviews, he would say, or his argument, his main argument would be that. Well, you will hate us anyway. You know, talking to the West, you will hate us anyway. We don't have anything to lose. And I remember uh, th- there was a discussion that Putin had inside Russia, and that was with um, with governors or with officials or, and, and, and representatives of the economic elites and financial elites, where he... probably describing uh, a potential response from the West and the, first of all, sanctions, economic sanctions, pretty hurtful economic sanctions against Russia. His argument was that they will introduce sanctions anyway, so it doesn't, doesn't really matter how we behave, they will keep on doing this. Because they are, they're trying to, you know, destroy Russia. You know, this uh, uh, quite, uh, uh, regular motive, uh, cr- quite regular motive, quite regular narrative of the of the Russian elites that the West is conspiring against Russia and wants to destroy it. So he's, yeah, we. It doesn't matter what we do, the West will try uh, to to destroy us. Yeah. So and I think that was for him. That was the the. Uh, the understanding. So he did not bother about uh, potential Western, re- re- Western response when he launched this uh, uh, invasion uh, last year.
0: Now, Putin may have believed that due to his own complexes and paranoia, but it is, to my mind, not believable that those around him apart from a few real extremists, actually bought into this idea. Because if you look at Solovyov with his son, who's a model in London, you look at, uh, um, you know, all of the entourage around him, including the oligarchs, they all had interests, villas, family members in the West. Um, They all would sort of travel uh, where the brands use the products. I find it... Incredible and unbelievable that they would have bought into this. So it seems to me that for many, this was just a sort of propagandist conceit. And at the same time, you had billions upon billions upon billions of uh, euros going to Russia um, to pay for energy, paid at market rate. Uh, So it's not about sort of ripping off Russia and stealing its resources. Um, That that just seems to me a sort of, uh, you know, a smart propagandist conceit.
1: Well, we unfortunately, we don't know about, uh, well, or let me put it this way. We know very little of the decision making process in the Kremlin. Uh, What we can think of uh, is that very few people are actually involved in a decision making process of that significance. So, if we're talking about the launch of the invasion I think that only probably, you know, less than 10 people knew what was happening. And I believe that those 10 people would somehow be rather on Putin's side when making those decisions, even if deep in their hearts, they could be in the opposition to a decision to, to launch a major offensive against Ukraine. Then when asked directly by Putin, they would try they would try to do their best not to appear weak because this is something that I think Putin despises. So in order to keep the well, whatever is left of their riches or influence or whatever, they they needed to go along with what Putin decided or what they thought Putin would decide. Yeah. And I think uh, we must be I think we, we should know that every person in Russia who is successful, economically, financially successful or politically successful, those people, they know that without the Putin regime, they would be nothing. So their stakes, yeah, they, they, they put their stakes on the survival of the Putin regime regime. Uh, no matter what mistakes it does, because without it, you know they they owe they owe Putin what 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 they have. They owe this to Putin, so they would need to go along. Um, they I don't think they even have a choice, any real choice. Of course, they can they can flee, but remember how many strange deaths um, took place in the course of two thousand and twenty-two when uh, you know chief managers from various uh, russian companies who decided that their um, that their fate lay elsewhere in the world well they turned out to be dead yeah so they they know what can happen to them if they go you know um, in a different in a different direction so it's a machine that is based on fear and uh, they may not they may hate Putin. They may despise him, but they also fear him. And this is how this regime keeps, um, keeps itself together.
0: And of course, that is the key distinction, uh, because another propagandist trope is that Ukraine is corrupt. They have oligarchs. They're run by oligarchs. So are we. So what? It's all the same. But actually, what you've just described here suggests that Ukrainian oligarchy is a completely different entity than russian oligarchy um wealth as an oligarch in ukraine bought genuine power and there was genuine competition between oligarchs for power and influence no such thing exists in russia if you're a russian oligarch as you say your wealth and power depends entirely on the state and if you engage in politics as Khodorkovsky did then you will cease to become an oligarch. Your wealth will be taken back. It's leased from the state. And if you go too far, as you've you've just pointed out, with the energy executives and businessmen, you'll simply be rubbed out, and your fortune will be passed on to somebody else who is far more compliant to the state.
1: Well, absolutely, and I I actually, I I believe that there are no oligarchs as such in Russia, because the, the, the term itself, oligarchy, it uh, supposes that that people who are rich, they have political power, which is not the case in the Russian Federation. You may have wealth, you may be rich, but you will never have political power. And c- as you correctly mentioned, Khodorkovsky is a very good example. And there are some, mi- some other minor examples to the same rule. If you want to do politics, well, it's, you can only do one thing, yeah. Uh, you can either be rich or do politics. But if you do politics, you know, you have to follow the line yeah. and only you can be rewarded for what you do. But only if it is in line with the Kremlin line for Ukraine, it's different because Ukraine developed in, in a quite a different manner. Uh, since it became, uh, you know, a post-Soviet country, since the 90s, since the beginning of the 90s. And actually, the different oligarch groups, they were, I think, like like a a proto-democracy in a way, because those were also interest groups who would have their own political interests. And since those businessmen would, would compete with each other, you would also have political competition. In Ukraine, actually, uh, today, uh, some people, some quite knowledgeable and intelligent observers of the Ukrainian developments, they actually worried about the uh, about the Ukrainian oligarchs' loss of their wealth and of their economic might. Because if you don't have oligarchs, then you, have, you don't have this democratic system in a way. Well, this is, I think, it's, a, it's an exaggeration to say because you don't really need oligarchs to have a democracy. But oligarchs in Ukraine, they, they sort of secured the democratic process without any reference to actually how democracy should work. Yeah, they. It was like uh, you know, uh, it was a natural democracy having those oligarchs, but uh, now, of course, the the, the the developments are very different. We see the rise of new political projects, uh, which are now only about the war. But uh, uh, the the political space will be dramatically reconfigured uh, in in Ukraine, uh, even you know uh, after after. What we hope is going to be Ukrainian victory.
0: I think that's in a fascinating point, which I know we're we're almost out of time, so we'll we'll maybe have to dig into that in a future episode. But I mean, my perspective, I think here is that um, oligarchy perhaps was an essential sa- phase of development to move towards democracy, and what happens next? Whether you have an overly powerful central state. That could be a regression, or whether you have an emergence of a middle class economy um, that actually leads to a further evolutionary stage of civil society. I think that's a big, big question for the post-war environment, and it's by no means certain. Um, although, given you know the extremely vibrant civil society and and seeing how. I guess, stubborn and argumentative. Many Ukrainians are, many I've interviewed. It seems that there's a good chance that that next phase of evolution could happen. My very last question, just to wrap up, I think, and, and get clarity on my own mind, is about this genocidal intent, because clearly Russia always has, and perhaps always will, looked to interfere in the affairs of the countries within its near abroad. Um, we know that from Georgia, Azerbaijan, Armenia, Kazakhstan. Even now, they're meddling in all of these countries' affairs, that this genocidal intent, if we say that it's not just Putin, that it goes a little bit further, um, which countries does that fall into and which does it not? I would assume here that Ukraine and Belarus would be seen as the core part of this Russian identity, this uh, this Rus. Whereas they might want to interfere in Central Asia and Chechnya and all these other places, but they might not necessarily see them as innately Russian, so it might not have that genocidal layer to it.
1: You see, with, uh, with interference, with malign influence, you know, political warfare, you don't need to actually wage a genocidal war in order to influence uh, a population or a society russia will and it will keep interfering it will keep on waging political warfare in the west but it doesn't mean that they are that they are trying to eliminate i don't know a romanian nation as a nation or or a german nation as a nation they're not it it, for even for putin it, it does not make any sense it only comes to I think Ukraine and Belarus, as you as you correctly mentioned, because they are seen as the integral part of the greater Russian nation. And let me give you this example. Uh, as we all know, uh, obviously, uh, Putin is coming from the KGB. F- so what he has from um, from his uh, from his work as a as a KGB officer, then as a, an FSB officer is the total, not even rejection, but, um, well, he despises people, he despises traitors. This is something that uh, I think all those KGB uh, and FSB officers learned. You you despise traitors. This This is the lowest where you can go. So, and those traitors, they need to be eliminated. And there is no moral dilemma for people like Putin about the elimination of traitors. And we saw that, you know, Skripal was, uh, you know, one of, was a victim of the attempt uh, to, to kill him. And because he was a traitor for, you know, for Putin and, and, and for the ruling elite uh, in Russia, for this, you know, Siloviki club, Ukrainians are are seen as traitors of the greater Russian nation. So they need to be eliminated. Either they join the Russian civilizational project or they, well, they should be destroyed. This is the logic behind this, you know, this KGB meets, uh, you know, uh, national identity uh, projects. This This is how they see it. If they're not with us, then they should not be anywhere because they constitute an error, they are a mistake that needs to be corrected.
0: Well, Anton, I think that's made it incredibly clear there. And of course, it's a terrifying idea, but it, I think it's important to understand, you know, the real causes of this war, rather than ascribing it to NATO expansion and all the rest of that kind of stuff. Um, I know you have Dash, it's been a huge pleasure speaking to you. I think there's some incredibly insightful ideas here, um, which, Possibly in a future episode we can unpack further, but I'm incredibly grateful to you for for the work you're doing and I will put links into the description of this video, among other things, to a fantastic kind of infographic you've created to try and unpack the different narratives um, that Russia uses in different regions of the world. So we'll we'll put a link to that in the video, Um, but thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Jonathan. It's been a pleasure talking to you.